I was going to forget again, but... <laughs> if you have... If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 2, so you'll want to turn there. And we will pick it up in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ... We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, a new day with all of the new mercy that attends it. We thank you for this place where we're gathered this morning to worship you and to learn of you and to, by faith, embrace the gospel. We pray, as we have already sung, that you would make us mindful that what we have, we have because of Christ. What we are, we are because of Christ. And that we have what we have and we are what we are because Christ has risen and is victorious over sin and death and is seated right now at your right hand making intercession for us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be in this room, in our hearts, working in our minds. As I speak, may we all listen, and may you anoint us to truly hear and to, to make right application of your word. Jesus, we want everything that we do here to glorify you. So help us to that end, we pray for your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So last week, I touched on the insinuation Paul is getting at here, that since righteousness comes through faith in Christ rather than obeying the law of Moses, adding the law back in as an enhancement or accoutrement, or an improvement to justification which comes through faith is the equivalent to saying that Christ's atonement is insufficient. Let me say that again because probably most of you just started listening. That's how I am. I'm like, oh, we're preaching now. Um, last week, what I said about this verse, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. And what I said was that <clears throat> if righteousness comes through faith in Christ, and we believe that it does, rather than obeying the law of Moses, which does not bring about righteousness, then adding that law back into salvation, as though obeying the law 
enhanced or improved our righteousness in Christ is equivalent to saying that Christ's atonement was insufficient. The only way that Christ's atonement was insufficient is if Christ were a sinner. Otherwise, we can't add anything to his perfect work. This week, what I want to do is kind of button up verse 17 with a more common attestation of Paul's meaning. Because when I walk out onto a thin branch and say, this is what I think the word of God is telling us, and I can't find a commentator that agrees with me, I at least am not so arrogant as to not tell you what the rest of them think it means. Okay, So here's what the rest of them think it means. And I don't disagree with this. I just, I chose to emphasize something else. If according to these Judaizing Christians, so we're talking about these brothers who came from James and started to pressure the Christians and the churches in Galatia to add the law back in. If according to these Judaizing Christians, by declaring that right standing with God comes through faith and not by works, Paul and those who agree with him are sinning. Let me take out everything that was in the parenthetics there. If according to these Judaizing Galatians, Paul and those who agree with him are sinning, it stands to reason that Christ is a minister of sin. That's how firmly convinced Paul is that faith comes by Sorry, righteousness comes by faith and not by works of the law. That he's willing to say, if it comes any other way, then Jesus is a liar and a minister of sin because he clearly commanded us to believe in him for salvation. If depending entirely on Jesus Christ for our righteousness is sinful and Jesus is the one who commanded us to do that, do the math. He must be a sinner. Said one more way. Unless a brother or sister is in clear violation of Scripture, we had better be careful about accusing them of being in sin, for they might simply be enjoying the liberty that they have found in Christ. If we believe someone is operating with a good conscience, we ought to leave them alone unless we find that they are in clear violation of the Scripture. If a believer is living with a good conscience and full faith in Christ's redemptive work, and we disagree with something that they do and try to compel them to live according to some religious tradition, in addition to their faith in Christ, what we are doing is insinuating that the freedom they have in the person and work of Jesus is sinful freedom. So in a couple of weeks, it'll be Easter, just so I can illustrate this. I might, I haven't decided yet, because I don't know if I'm free to do this or not. I might wear a suit and a tie, because it's Easter, right? But I'm afraid if I do that, some of you will look at me and go, oh, I should have worn a suit and a tie. I don't care what you wear on Easter any more than any other Sunday, but I might do it just because it's Easter. And it feels like, ah, it's Easter, we should dress up. But I don't think that my righteousness comes from a suit and a tie. Or what version of the Bible I choose to read. Or any other number of religious ceremonial things that we paste on to Christianity. 
Verse 18 says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What does Paul mean by rebuilding what I tore down? <clears throat> well, last week, we, we didn't touch on the condemnation of the law, but we did see the three functions of the moral law and how it is still binding in the heart and life of a believer, right? What we saw is that the law shows us our sin. That's function number one. There's only three, so you can pay attention for all three. Function number one, the law shows us our sin. I'd say that because I was already tuning out and I'm the one preaching. <laughs> Function number two is that it restrains evil with threats of judgment. So there's a condemnatory element to the law, right? When you're going along in the illustration that I used last week, you find out suddenly and vividly that you're doing 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. You don't slow down just because the sign is so intimidating, Right? There's nothing about a speed limit sign that threatens you. But there is a threat attached to the law. And that is if you get caught breaking it, there are consequences. So the moral law restrains evil by suggesting to the sinner the threat of punishment for violating it. That's number two. Number one was shows us our sin. Number two restrains evil with threats of judgment. And number three, it guides the regenerate in acts of obedience which God desires for them, not from them, for them. And I was careful to say no fewer than nine times. I didn't go back and count them up, but I know it was at least nine. And in nine different ways, that keeping the law is not a means of increasing our right standing with God, right? If the law doesn't exist to show us how to impress God, what does it do? If the law isn't a means of our salvation from sin, how is the law binding on the believer? And if the law's role is not that of a how-to guide for increasing our own righteousness, what is its role? Well, we touched on but didn't unpack this last week in great detail. So it's a little bit confusing, I think, when Paul says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And I'm just guessing. I'm not trying to say, oh, I'm smarter than all of you. I'm just guessing here that if I said, come up and explain to us what that means, you might struggle a little bit. Even if you've already read and studied this before, you might for a moment be like, yeah, I'm not sure exactly what that means. And some of you, like the really good salesmen in the room, could like shuck and jive your way through it, which is what some preachers do. But what I've tried to do is diligently, surgically find out what I, what, what, what's meant here. And there's a couple of applications that you could make. Part of what he has in mind when he says, if I rebuild what I've tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Part of what he has in mind is the division between Jew and Gentile. Okay, so Peter had been guilty of putting up this wall between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. Because the Jewish Christians had been circumcised, had a history of obeying the ceremonial elements of the law. The Gentile Christians had none of that. All the Gentile Christians had was faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, So these brothers from James roll in. Peter had been hanging out with everybody, and all of a sudden he starts separating himself from those who were not Jews first. 
This is rebuilding a wall of division that Christ tore down. That's, I think, part one. Now, because I did all that extemporaneously, I don't know where I am in my notes. Ah, I also believe that he means this. By grace through faith, I, Paul, tore down this idea that I could rescue myself from the judgment of God by obeying the law. So there's two things. There's that first thing. If I rebuild what I tore down, which is when I was a Pharisaical Jew, I had an expectation that anybody that was going to worship God had to do it in this specific way prescribed by the law of Moses. Tore that down. Christ actually tore that down. Second, I believed when I was a Pharisaical Jew that I could attain the righteousness of God by obeying the law. I've torn that down. And so must, I think, every believer under the, the, the compelling, forceful, repetitive nature of the gospel's convicting command, every believer must for themselves tear down this idea that you can impress God with your works. Amen. You can't. So because I understand that God's affection, acceptance, love for, and redemption of me depend entirely on the work of Jesus Christ, I stopped using the law as a means for gaining God's affection. The law was never intended to redeem sinners. If now, understanding that, I go back and start trying to keep the law to impress God again, I prove myself to be a sinner all over again. I really want us to understand what this means, so I'm going to belabor the point. But I'm going to do it is in, in as entertaining a fashion as humanly possible. There will be pictures. Sunday, June 24th, 2018, at around 8.40 p.m., I saw a teenager in need of humbling. This was a 15-year-old male. At 38, I was the right person for the job. When I was young, and I still thought on June 18th, or 24th, 2018, when I was young, and I still thought I was fast. When I was young, I was. I still thought I was at 38. So... Without saying a word, I challenged the 15-year-old to a game of cat and mouse. He was the mouse, and I was the cat. And I sprinted after him, and I think I surprised him a little bit. (laughs) He didn't have to go full speed, but he was surprised that he had to go faster than he thought he was going to have to go. And around the asphalt parking lot we went until suddenly, as I attempted to cut My right foot slipped entirely out from underneath me, and all of my momentum somehow projected me up into the air, and I saw the ground approaching my head rapidly. So I did a spin move, and instead of landing on my head, I landed with all 160 of my pounds on my left shoulder. I felt a vibration all through my back and up into my neck every time I moved after I got up. Just this electric shock that ran through my shoulder into my neck. 
It wasn't long before, with some help, we figured out something was broken. My left clavicle shattered into at least three pieces, not counting the bits. And the interior portion in here was stabbing back into my trapezius. That was the electrical shock feeling. We didn't know any of this until an hour after we got to the emergency room. Uh, after sitting there for an hour in excruciating pain, uh, they wheeled in a device that had a long articulating arm on it with what looked like a cannon at the end. And they pointed it at my left shoulder. And this is what we saw. Lee, help a brother out. Unless it catches up. Just go to the next slide. That's all I need you to do. Oh, we're not on air? Just click the on air button for me. This will be worth it, I promise. <laughs> Maybe Kate needs to go bail Lee out. Are we asking too much of Lee? Kate, get up there. It's a long, oh, never mind. Tech support. <laughs> on air, we got it? All right, now go all the way to my slideshow. All right, so that's my left clavicle. And then just advance to the next slide for me. Those are the three pieces of what should be one bone. That one on the left is the one that's stabbing backwards into my trapezius. And it's quite sharp on the end there. So it went in quite deep. Leave it up just for a moment, Lee. Thank you, by the way, for the help. I saw this. That night, on a screen, if I recall correctly, it wasn't printed out yet. And I remember thinking at the time, it doesn't matter how many x-rays the technician takes of my left clavicle, the x-ray machine is not going to fix that. It's just going to keep showing that. All right, next slide. That fixed it. That's a plate and nine screws holding my clavicle together two days later. And the next slide, that's about two months after that. So the healing has begun. And if I were to pull my shirt down where you could see, you could count the screw heads through my skin right now. That was the fix. Thank you. You can go to the next slide, which should take it perfect. The law is a diagnostic tool. The law shows us what's wrong. The law will show you what is wrong every time you hold your own actions up to it. To return to the law is to see afresh what's wrong, what's broken. Every consultation with the law will show you again and again and again, relentlessly, what's broken. It is merciless in that action. No matter how badly I wanted that x-ray to show that I had only bruised my shoulder, it consistently displayed exactly what was going on underneath my skin. 
No matter how badly I wanted the x-ray to show that the damage would repair itself over time, it only showed the hopelessness of the situation. And furthermore, knowing that I had smashed myself to bits did absolutely nothing to help me because I couldn't fix what was broken. Gaze as I might at those x-rays, I couldn't formulate a viable plan to repair the damage. In fact, the surgeon later pointed out that if you looked at me head on, my head was closer to this shoulder than it was to this one because the thing had compressed in so far. You can't fix that. No amount of strong-arming myself was going to fix that. So there are two things the diagnostic tool showed me. First, you are broken. Second, you are helpless to fix it. There's nothing you can do. And that is all the diagnostic tool would do. Show me you're broken. You're helpless to fix it. Look at the x-ray all you want. That's all it's going to accomplish. Show you you're broken. Show you you can't fix it. Verse 19 in Galatians 2. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So this should make more sense now. Listen, through the law, I died to the law. The law showed me I was broken, showed me I couldn't fix it. So I quit trying to use the diagnostic tool as a cure. I gave up on that. I quit hoping in the diagnostic tool. The diagnostic tool gave me no hope. Through the law, so by consulting the diagnosis, I died to the law. I gave up on the diagnostic tool being my hope. Do you hear it? Yeah. Through the law, by consulting the diagnosis, I died to the law. I quit hoping in the diagnosis. The tool fixed nothing so that I might live to God. This might be better translated that I might get my life from God. So it's Greek and it's tricky. And 53 times elsewhere in the New Testament, this word is translated live. A couple of times it's translated they got their life. And I think this is one of those where that should have happened. I quit trusting in this so that I could trust in that instead. I quit hoping for life in the diagnostic that I might get my life from God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what becomes of the law once it has done its job? If you go look at the law right now, what does it tell you? Look at Matthew 7. You'll note with some admiration that I did not say, turn to Exodus chapter 20. <laughs> Matthew 7, verse 
Wait. I changed my mind. Matthew 5. <laughs> verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Is everybody there? If you're not there, you should be by now. All right. Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What does that law, which Jesus just laid down, tell you about yourself? Are there people in your life that you're sick of? Welcome to the club. Are there people at work that you are better than? Me too. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What does that law tell you about yourself? It tells me that God can see precisely what's going on in my innermost being. So though I might succeed in keeping the law outwardly, where all of you can see it, I have never succeeded in keeping it inwardly where God can see. So are we keeping the law? Here's the question. What becomes of the law once it has done its job? If it's a diagnostic designed to direct you from the diagnostic to the cure, what does the law do once it's accomplished that? Once you have turned from hoping and keeping the law to hoping in Christ instead, what does it do? Well, it's still telling you things about yourself. It's still, in one sense, pronouncing the threat of judgment to you. Every time you consult it, there should be a part of you that goes, ooh, if you're honest, because none of us has managed to capture our thoughts to the point where even those are always consistently pleasing to God. In fact, if we're honest, I think we could all say none of us has captured our thoughts to the point where they are ever consistently pleasing to God. In fact, if we were really honest, what we would say is none of us has ever captured our thoughts so that they were even a little bit pleasing to God. Well, why would your conscience bother you when you hear the law? Because the diagnostic works the way it was designed to. That's the purpose. The law still cons consistently, relentlessly drives us to the treatment. The law reminds us of that critical piece that I mentioned earlier. I needed someone else to put me back together. I could not fix what the x-ray revealed was broken. 
Jesus is the cure for what is broken in the heart and the mind and the soul of a sinner. Not the law. But if the law should stop revealing to me what's broken, then I will stop going to him for the cure. And remember, the whole point of this epistle is that we would be in relationship with him. So the the law, as violent as it is, as cruel of a master as it is, throws me like a wave against the rock of ages so that I might by faith embrace again and again and again the cure that I need for what truly ails me. For the Christian, the law holds no threat of judgment for disobedience. Look at Romans 7. Romans 7, just for the sake of time, we'll start in verse 4. But let me say this. You could use most of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, a lot of Colossians 3, tons of 1 Corinthians to make the point that I'm going to make really briefly based on what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. Romans 7.4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are... Released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. For the Christian, the law holds no threat of judgment for disobedience, but it certainly shows us how much we need Christ's righteousness. It it has a function and then it has a stopping point. The law may go this far and no further in the life of a Christian because the law can't judge me. The law cannot condemn you to death. Look, if you're in Christ, the law cannot condemn you to death. Why? Because you already died. He hung on the cross and bled and prayed and never for a moment stopped believing that his father was the righteous judge so that you would not have to stand trembling and naked before God knowing that he's the righteous judge with nothing to protect you from his wrath. Jesus bore that penalty. The law carries no threat of judgment for you. If you are in him, you already died. You were crucified with Christ. The law can't kill you. This is what Paul is getting at. When Christ died, we died with him. Our sins, our guilt, and the condemnation were laid on him, and he dealt with the judgment of the law when he hung on the cross. So Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Go back and look at as much of the law as you can. You'll find that you are still in progress. You will find 
that you are not yet perfect. You will find that you yet have need of mercy and grace from God in Christ. There are still things wrong with you. You still sin. You still fail. Sometimes breathtakingly. Sometimes in ways that make you wonder if you've really been saved. But you don't need to be afraid if, if, the consideration of your frailty, your failures, and your sin drives you into the pierced side of Christ. You should be afraid if considerations of the law drive you only to do better, only to try harder. What you need is to be held fast in the grip of grace. Your righteousness is secured not by your perfect obedience, but by his. We are free to consult the diagnostic without feelings of fear, shame, and guilt overwhelming us because in Christ, fear, shame, and guilt have been done away with. Now we live. Do you see what he says? The life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the clarion call of the gospel. The Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And my question is, when did he do that? After you started keeping the law a little bit better? Or while you were yet in your sin and transgressions, while you were yet dead, Paul says, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Means when you feel awful, And if you get nothing else from this message, get this. When you feel awful about your own remaining corruption and you have that overwhelming sense of guilt and shame for the fact that you could look upon a crucified Savior and sin anyway, you've taken a beautiful first step. But what you need to realize is that he did not die up there for no purpose. He died up there to redeem you, knowing what he was redeeming you from, knowing the guilt and condemnation that you had incurred by your own decisions and your own sinfulness. He knew. He hung on the cross 2,000 years before you were even a zygote. He knew what he was dying for. The life you now live, live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.